Our Father, we do come before you, and we are thankful, thankful that you've given us your word, thankful that we can hear it read without persecution, we can gather together and learn from you what you have for us today. Father, we know that we come from all different walks of life, with a heart, um, hearts that need to hear from you, hearts that need afresh to know that you care about us, that you care about us in our own moments of brokenness and hurt. And so, Father, we rest knowing that your Holy Spirit will speak. May we have the ears to hear. May we have the eyes to see and the hearts that are willing to submit to your ways. We do love you and thank you for Jesus. Amen. Well, we live in a goal-driven world, don't we? We live in a goal-driven world. I mean, if you get into any meaningful conversation with just about anyone, eventually you're going to get on the topic of goals, you know? Um, We ask questions like, well, what's your goal for that? Um, What are your spiritual goals? I mean, we're close enough to 2013 that people say, oh, what are your exercise, you know, what are your exercise goals? Sometimes we use different language. We'll say, well, what's your aim? What are you you shooting for in that friendship? You know, what are you trying to do in your marriage? And people even say, you know, what are your goals for your pet's exercise? I mean, you name it, and we've got a goal for it, right? And having goals really are a good thing. They can be a very good thing. They help us be focused. They help us help motivate us and track our progress. And really, it even helps clarify what we're actually shooting for in in something, right? But contrary to this slogan, if you have a goal, failure is possible. Failure is possible. There's at least one big danger as I think about goals. I mean, there are many uh, that make having a goal uh, not necessarily entailing success, but one is If your goal is off, if your goal is mistaken, if it's incorrect, if it's short-sighted, then the process itself will be frustrating, in the end, downright depressing. Um, There are a lot of ways we can see repercussions of mistaken goals in our everyday life. So, for example, when marriage becomes a skewed means to an end just for sex, then the relationship becomes frustrating, and it even becomes destructive. Whereas if we think of work and we become workaholics just so that we can gain these large amounts of money, our jobs also become empty because the goal of work is about money rather than contribution. Or when we abuse alcohol and we use that specifically to escape life, the goal there is that it leaves you in a greater depression and a greater frustration than when you first began to turn to the bottle. Well, see, if our goal is mistaken, then always our, our results will come up short-handed. They'll fall short. So I ask you this morning, and I'm, I'm hoping for some participation. Um, every now and then we do this, but don't feel scared. We're a loving community, so just shout them out, and I'm going to write them up here. What do you think is the goal of Christianity? What do you think is the goal of Christianity, or what is salvation all about? So don't, don't be shy. Don't be shy. What do you think is the goal of Christianity? The good news, okay, it's good news, heaven, I'm just going to write them up here to help us, keep going, see if I'm not looking at you, sometimes that's less threatening, so, heaven, serving, Serving. great, community, okay, very good, grace, there we go. Gary, I was looking, I was trying to figure out who came out. That's good. Grace. 
Love. Joy, I heard that voice out there. Very good. Joy. What else? Alistair. What else? To glorify God. What else? Forgive, very good forgiveness. Oh, there's three S's. I mean, really, forgiveness is key. What else? What was that? Repentance. Very good. And you guys have brought the heat this morning. I wasn't expecting this many answers. I'm very, very proud of you. Just awesome crew. I don't even know if I spelled that one right. I was never a good speller. Actually, my two sisters and my mom and I, we would sit in church and we would have like these note sheets sometimes. And uh, whenever the pastor would fill in the blank, we would look at each other's blanks and we'd all spell the word differently. And then we'd start laughing and we'd kind of get in trouble. So, well here, I'm going to actually propose, these are great answers. Thank you so much for your participation. You just blow me away. If we look throughout the storyline of scripture, we see these are all aspects of salvation. But really, the goal of salvation is God. This is the goal of salvation. This is the purpose of Christianity. And all of these are benefits because of who God is. All of these are possible because of what God has done. God himself, he's our highest good, and he's our greatest goal. Not what he promises, Not what he delivers us from, and not even what he leads us toward. But he is our heart's highest goal. God has designed us, he's wired us to be goal-oriented or purpose-motivated people so that we can find our highest goal and our greatest good in him. He's designed us and wired us this specific way so it becomes a natural outflow to kind of seek after him. Although that has been broken since the fall. Now, as some of you may already know, um, Allie and I, uh, we adopted this little puppy, <laughs> little Lola, who isn't a little puppy anymore. Um, and when we first got her, she was abandoned and she was starved. And so she wasn't feeling, she didn't feel very comfortable being around us. She didn't trust us. She wasn't comfortable to rest. And it was quite a little anxious puppy. But now everything has changed. And it has a lot to do with Allie because she's with home with her as she works from home quite a bit. And so... Lola has a literal case of puppy love with Allie. Um, She always has to be right next to her. Um, No matter where she sits, she just finds a way to be near Allie. And if, you know, if Allie's sitting on the couch, she has to be laying on her, on her feet somewhere. If she's working in the office, she has to be sitting underneath her chair. And if Allie goes into the bedroom to read a magazine and shuts Lola out, then Nothing can appease Lola. No toys, no matter how big the room is, nothing can appease her except to be with her best friend, Allie. And so you, you see with, with Lola, her perception is there is no greater good than just being with Allie. It just so happens that Allie is also the source of treats. Uh, so that's always the benefits of being with Allie, you know, is that you get these treats and these goodies. 
But the toys aren't the goal. The large space isn't the goal. If, if Allie isn't in the room, no matter how big it is, it feels like a large kennel keeping her from her prized possession. And it just so happens that the animal kingdom here, I think it, treats, or it teaches us a great lesson on our relationship with God, our heart's longing and our connection to God. We won't be satisfied with all the toys of life, no matter how much fun they may be, unless we see that the wired goal of our heart is truly God. And in his grace, he's also made us his goal in return, which is so beautiful about the story of Scripture. So God longs to be known. This is what we see throughout the pages and the stories of, of the Bible. And he works to do whatever is necessary, whatever is good, to make himself known to his creation. In our passage this morning, we see the paradigm for God's rescue. In our story, we answer three clarifying questions that we all need for our heart's greatest goal. First, who is God? You know, who is this goal of our, of our heart? Secondly, what is salvation? By what means do we receive this great goal? And then thirdly, what difference does it make? How, how, do, how is seeing God as our heart's greatest goal really change everything? So first we ask, who is God? Who is God? Well, up to this point, as we've been journeying through Scripture together through our series Open Here, this year-long journey of trying to read Scripture together. Um, and I, how's that going, by the way? Are you guys staying up with your reading schedules, having fun, digging into the Word together, having cross-conversations with families that are reading the same thing? I mean, that's super exciting. But as we've been seeing throughout the storyline, we first saw that God is a thoughtful creator. He's a thoughtful creator, and he brings good and beautiful order out of chaos, breathing all of creation into a designed existence for the good of humanity. But the humanity that he created rebels against him, right? Against their thoughtful creator. And he loved his creation too much to just leave them in their brokenness forever. He'd always had a plan to combat evil. This didn't surprise him. And so he chooses to make these outlandish promises to the whole world through one man and his offspring. This young man, or this not-so-young man, actually, Abraham, is promised to bless the whole world through his offspring. And in God's timing and in God's way, we see that he is El Shaddai. He's the promised one. He is God Almighty. And he is an all-powerful promise keeper. Ultimately, God will do what he says he will do. And to prove the point further, as we saw last week, the book of Genesis narrows in on one of Abraham's offspring, his great-great-grandson, Joseph. And he, he had this really cushy beginning, right? He's, he's the favorite of his pops. But thanks to his brothers, you know, uh, for a good portion of his life, he spends it in slavery. He experiences false accusation. He's imprisoned. He's abandoned until at the right time, God takes him from the dungeons and the depths and places him second in command of the largest, the, the largest superpower in the world at the time, Egypt. God is working to fulfill his promises even when it seems darkest. And we saw God is still for his people even though everything else seems like it's against us. Well, he continues to reveal himself this morning. And this is where we jump in. We've had these different pictures of who God is, the main character of the story of the Bible. And he continues to invite us deeper 
into knowing him when we enter into the book of Exodus. So when we come to Exodus 6, the passage that Wendy beautifully read for us, we see that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You see, Abraham's offspring had come 400 years to be with Joseph, and they now found themselves in cruel slavery underneath the oppression of Egypt. And so this new Pharaoh, he didn't remember the good news that Joseph had brought upon the the Egyptian nation. And in those years, Israel had gone from being the size of a family to the numbers of a nation. They were huge now. They'd expanded. And this really scared the Egyptians. And what do those in power do when they are scared? They oppress. Because they're afraid to lose their privilege, their right of rule. They try to control the population by enslaving the whole nation and also killing all newborn males and throwing them into the Nile River as a sign of trying to control and keep that clutch of slavery upon the Israelites. Well, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we see the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew the situation, and so his promise takes form in a plan of deliverance. God won't wait any longer. And in Exodus 3, Verses 7 and 8, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But we see that God doesn't do this alone. He never tends to do things alone. He, he works through the brokenness of humanity for his plans of salvation. And he calls an outcast of Egypt, Moses. Yeah, he was a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, who had been raised in the house of Pharaoh. I mean, this great story of being found in the Nile and raised in the household of the ruler of Egypt. But he'd fled Egypt just years before because he'd killed an Egyptian who was beating one of his own people. He had envisioned freeing his own people through violence, but it didn't work. Well, God had a different way that he was going to free his people, which is neat when we follow the story here of Exodus. And he calls Moses, who, you know, we think of Charlton Heston, you know, standing up there with the Ten Commandments. But really, Moses isn't really that confident of a guy. He's not probably someone we would have looked at and said, man, what a strapping young man. He would lead the people, you know. This is Moses. He's one of the meekest guys in all of Scripture. Quiet. He says he stutters and he stammers. But Moses, through these conversations with God, which blows our mind, reluctantly agrees to be God's spokesman, as long as his brother Aaron can come with him and help him out. <laughs> I can't do this alone. You know, I, I, can't, I can't talk in front of people. And he finds himself before Pharaoh once again, this convict in a sense. And upon Moses' request to free the nation's biggest free workforce and this giant superpower, Pharaoh pretty much laughs him out of his court. And then he actually makes the work of the Israelites more stringent. He takes away their straw for making bricks. And it stirs the anguish and the heartache of the people of Israel as they have to now work harder to do the same amount of work. Well, Moses, he gets super discouraged. I mean, he was already battling this from the beginning. 
And he wrestles, and he finally comes before God. And this is what he says right before the passage, which was read for us this morning. Now, mind you, he's saying this to God, which is amazing about God's character that he listens to this. Moses says, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What gives? (laughs) What's going on? I mean, if you were God, how would you respond to Moses at this point? Maybe a little bit of disappointment. Maybe time to get a new spokesman, you know. Uh, it's, it's time to change things up a little bit. Well, our chapter this morning, chapter 6 in the story, is God's response to Moses' crying out. What reasons does Moses give to God? Or what do, reasons does God give to Moses, rather? None. Nada. Zippo. Rather, he just says in verse 1, now is the time for deliverance, Moses. Before wasn't the time. This is. And you're going to get to see it. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in ways that I showed them that I was God Almighty. I was El Shaddai. And I made my promise with them that I would give them this great land, the land of Canaan. But now the time has come to take possession of that promised land. Now is the time. I've heard the cries and the groanings of my people in Egypt. I haven't forgot what I said I would do, Moses. But now's the time. And you see, this doesn't take God by surprise. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, when talking with Abraham centuries earlier, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, before his name was changed, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, the exact time period here. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This whole situation, it doesn't take God by surprise. I get surprised when I find out how much it costs to put a filling in my tooth. But nothing surprises God. Absolutely nothing. And it's in this moment, through their pain, they're going to get to witness a beautiful attribute and aspect of who God is. So who is God? We see that God is. God is. The Hebrew word actually for Exodus, the title of this book that we're journeying through for a couple weeks, originally means names, believe it or not. And Exodus is often called the book of names. So it makes sense that Exodus, in Exodus, we see this heightened emphasis on how God identifies himself with his name. You see, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, the passage, one of the verses out of the passage that we heard this morning that's in your welcome folder, God says he's revealing something new about himself in his name, the Lord. Every time we see this in our English Bibles, it's kind of weird. It's like, whoops, did somebody actually do, you know, accidentally hit caps lock when they were doing the translation? Why is Lord in all caps here? And that's because... um, in Jewish, uh, the Jewish writers in Hebrew were so revering of the name of the Lord that's giving here, they would actually just use the consonants. They wouldn't do the vowel notations. What they would do usually is use the vowel notations of another Hebrew word, Adonai, with this so that they didn't take the Lord's name in vain. So you just find the, the four consonants, and we wrestle through what the, what the name actually sounded like. But That's why we find LORD in all caps, because the translators carry this similar emphasis here. Some older translations use Jehovah, 
which is actually those consonants with the vowel notations from the other word, so it's not a literal name, it's kind of the mixture of the two names. Um, but that's why we find Lord in all caps. It's to carry forth the same sort of emphasis and revering. Well, most scholars believe the pronunciation of God's name is Yahweh. And this means I am, which is really unique when we think about how God is defining himself, not how we define him, but how God defines himself here in these passages. He tells Moses that he's radically going to define himself by a verb rather than a noun here. God is not subject to our expectations and our definitions many times, but he shows up in his, cre- his creation to fulfill his good promises. He's always present and presently working. He's an active God. He's just not some idea that's good for community building. But he's in and present and working for the good of his creation. So in other words, if you were to read Exodus 6.3 with with a, with a um, amplified version, it's as if God is saying, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but only partially, in the capacity of El Shaddai. But who I am fully, which is what my name Yahweh captures, I did not make myself known to them. This is made known first only now to you, the Exodus generation, who will witness my mighty saving power. You see, God longs to be known. And he's working throughout history to reveal himself in Scripture. And he wants us to be known so much that he keeps revealing himself throughout the lives of his people in earthy, tangible history. He now shows himself in the story of Exodus to be a God who will save his people. He's a saving God. But we still need clarity, don't we? Because this word salvation is kind of a tricky word. You know, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? So we ask, what is salvation? What is salvation? And in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8, God gives Moses a speech to rally the people. In essence, because God is, I am, he's he's present, I am that I am, he will save. And to help us see this a little more clearly, um, we could do a quick outline of verses 6 through 8. Now, as you're reading through your passages throughout the week, together, um, in community or individually, sometimes it helps to just outline the ideas to help you dig in a little bit deeper and to see what's going on in the passage. So we're going to actually do that really quick this morning, uh, verses uh, 6 through 8. Interestingly, in this speech, God starts with himself, right? He starts by saying, I am. I am the Lord. And then he goes to seven I wills. Seven I wills. So first he says, because I am, I am, I will bring... I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem. Man, does this feel like school again or what? I will redeem. And then I will take. I will take you as my own. And I will be your God. I will be. And I will bring And I will give. And then he ends it once again with his signature. I am the Lord, all caps. I am, I am. 
And if you follow this, it's quite, it's quite amazing that he bases what he's going to do out of who he is. He is the ever-present, ever-working God. And this is, this is why he will do these seven things. And then he just reminds us, remember, this is why I'm doing it, because I am Yahweh. I am. And it's in this speech we actually see broadly three kinds of deliverance. These seven I wills capture three broad types of deliverance as we understand what salvation is. And first, salvation is deliverance from something. It's deliverance from something. So you can see that here in these first three. It's deliverance... Oh, man. Here we go. Deliverance from. And the Israelites, they needed rescue, right? There's no way they're going to get out of their plight without something miraculous breaking in, breaking their chains, and bringing them out from under the burdens of their oppressors, the nation of Egypt. The old way of living that wore them down, their old identity as slaves, they saw themselves as slaves, as property, it left them feeling worthless. And the life, if you could even call it that, was a living death, working for others, being beaten down, just seen as a piece of property, a piece of machinery to do the work of the privileged. Well, God's going to crash the Egyptians' party with his plagues, with his outstretched arm. That's what that means. That's the, the language of God's power, and he's going to come. And this is how God will save, how God will deliver the people of Israel out of their hell, out of their living hell that they currently find themselves in. With each destructive plague, he's sending a message that he's more powerful than whoever is bringing bondage upon them. Ra, the sun god of Egypt, is ha- he has to bow to Yahweh. Nimbus, he's got to bow to Yahweh. Pharaoh, who is also seen as a god in the Egyptian co- culture, eventually bows his knee to Pharaoh or to, to Yahweh. For only Yahweh is the true God. Only Yahweh is I am, present and presently working. So when God comes to save, there isn't anything that can stop him from delivering you from whatever brokenness you find yourself in, whatever type of problem you find yourself in, whatever type of pain or hurt that has caused uh, great destruction in the past and even has repercussions in the present. There's nothing that God cannot deliver you from. He is more powerful than whatever you're going through. This is the type of God that saves us. He delivers us from Well, next salvation we see is deliverance two. And we're actually going to look at the last two here. First, before we go to the middle two, he's deliverance two. So these were, he's going to bring you out of bondage. He's going to deliver you from slavery. He's going to redeem you from the brokenness you found yourself into. He's going to bring us from that, but he's going to bring us to something great. I will bring you to a great land. I will give you the land that I have promised. You see, God's not just about saving us from past brokenness, but bringing us into present flourishing and also future hope. God's deliverance, it's not just about slavery and bringing us out of it, but a deliverance into a new kind of life, a life that reminisces all the way back in the garden. The life we were designed to live, where we walk and talk with God and live in peace with one another and all of creation. This is God's desire. It's not to just set up some rules that limit our lifestyle, but to guide us in the way of flourishing. Because that's the way we were made, and he knows us, and he knows our good. 
He's a delivering from and a delivering to kind of God. He keeps working beyond what we could ask or think. And for the Israelites, it's bringing them to the promised land, a land where they're no longer slaves, but they can be freed men and women, working and flourishing in contribution for the good of the community. So not only is it deliverance from and deliverance to, but ultimately it's deliverance for. And we see this actually in the middle two, which is a place of emphasis and speech. It's a place where focus is brought. For. We are delivered for God. This is the language of salvation. The language he actually uses here in these verses reminisces of marriage, actually. He will take us as his own, and we will be his own. This is why he's doing all of this. He says, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. I am the Lord, your God. Now, this language of knowing, it's more than just understanding facts about him. It's more than just doing a checklist of theological propositions. But to relate with him. It's very relational, this language of knowing. This knowing is the same word used for the intimate, experiential, and relational connection of when Adam knew his wife Eve and later conceived and bore a son. It's, it's, it's this type of language of knowing God that should bring us to imagine a similar transparency, a similar trust and closeness with our Creator, that which has been exampled or shown between a husband and and a wife. So God here we see is the ultimate goal for salvation. The from and the to are ultimately for the for. God is saving us for himself. And if this is true, if this is how God is even relaying salvation out of who he is to a hurting and broken people, what difference does this make? What difference does it really make in our everyday life? How seeing God as the ultimate goal that changes everything, well, it makes a difference. It makes all the difference in heaven, and it makes all the difference on earth. So we need to ask, first, we need to ask the hard questions. The hard question, is God the ultimate goal of your heart? Is God the ultimate goal of your heart? If he's not, you're going to find yourself frustrated. Yeah, there are still moments of joy in life, but they will not last. They will not endure if God is not at the center of your heart and your passion and your calling. Whenever we have a mistaken goal, we end up frustrated and depressed at the end of it because we realize it cannot fulfill what our heart is truly longing for. And here's the other thing. If you claim to be a Christian, then you need to ask, why am I a Christian? And we could think of all the reasons that we've mentioned already. Yeah, we get saved from brokenness. We see God's power. He delivers us from hurt and pain. It's great to be freed. And he also delivers us to something great. He brings peace, joy, and loving, a loving community and the church. And quite frankly, we have the joy of seeing, uh, with the hope of seeing our family once again and our friends that are close to Christ as well. There's great benefits. But what about the one we were delivered for? Can you truly say like Paul does in Philippians 1, 21 through 23, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Why are you a Christian? 
Why are you following Jesus today? And John Piper, he's a prominent pastor out in Minnesota. He pries here a little bit and helps us by asking, why do we want to go to heaven when we die? And he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's the ultimate question. Who's your ultimate heart's goal? This is the question of heaven. This is the great goal of following Jesus is that one day we will be with him. And the benefits that flow from being with Christ, with being with God and Christ, are all of these things, yes. But if we find our sole goal is one of these periphery, one of these benefits, then we cannot have even them. Because they only flow genuinely and lasting when we have our ultimate goal as God. And God in Christ. Another pastor, J.C. Ryle, he puts it this way, when we also talk about why do we want to go to heaven, he says, but alas, how, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die, while they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ. You give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a wearisome and a burden to your heart. Oh, repent and change before it's too late. I remember watching the show Modern Family, and there's this great episode where Manny's out with his stepdad out on the golf course. And because his stepdad said, there's, nobody, goes, nobody goes to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. And then Manny says, well, what about the people that are really, they, they hate people and they're really mean? And, and then the stepdad says, well, they get a special part of heaven. Well, how do we know we're not like going to interact with them when we get to heaven? He goes, well, there's kind of a, a wall around them and there's barbed wire fence so they can't get out. He goes, that sounds a lot like hell. Because <laughs> we, we, we have to ask these questions because we as people, we make decisions and we have trajectories that we're headed on. And ultimately, what Scripture is saying, if your ultimate goal is not God, you're not going to want to be in heaven because heaven is all about God and Christ and what he has done through Christ for the redemption of the world. And if your heart is not set there, then heaven will not be a comfortable place for you. Is the goal of your heart mistaken? If so, then realign your goals. Realign your goals. This is a great opportunity. Get to know God. I mean, really know him. Not just know about him, but pray that the Holy Spirit would cultivate a longing and a passion for him, that your heart's goal would be found in him. Oh, that we would have the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 42, where he says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's only here that we finally find what our hearts are looking for. Otherwise, we continue worn down and calloused by the yoke of slavery, either to our own preferences or our own decisions and pain. But we can hear the Son of God who's inviting us to come. As he says in Matthew 11, Take my yoke, it is easy, and my burden is light. Put down the yoke of slavery. Put down the burdens that are bearing you. Is your heart tired of chasing after mistaken goals? 
Well, if we look in the story of Exodus 6, in verse 9, how do the people respond to this great speech of God's character and his activities to redeem? When Moses spoke these words of salvation to them, they didn't listen because they were so worn out. They didn't listen because the the language there is that they were short of breath. And it's capturing this picture of a child when it's sobbing and weeping and trying to catch its breath. It's so worn out and in pain that they can't see past their pain. Well, Well, don't let your pain keep you from seeking after God. Don't let other people's pain keep you from seeking after God as the ultimate goal of your heart. And we do this sometimes by just becoming numb. We bury our heads in our work. We deafen our ears in in skepticism. But now is the time to realign your heart so that God is the goal of your heart. But this also makes a difference. When we actually place God as the goal of our heart, it makes a difference in our posture towards God and how we relate to Him and His Word. So when God is the goal of our heart, we show it by our trust and our obedience to His Word. Because if He's the ultimate goal... Wherever he leads is okay because we're with him. It's not about, well, this makes me feel comfortable. Oh, this makes sense in our culture. No, this is where God is. This is where his word is revealing that he is at. And that is good enough for me because God is there. Don't don't keep me outside of the room. None of the toys you give me, no matter how big the room is, if God isn't in there, then my heart is not satisfied. Well, interestingly... If we follow the storyline of Scripture, there comes another 400-year period. Similarly, as the Egyptians were enslaved uh, enslaved for 400 years, another 400 years comes where God seems to be silent, where His people are crying out to Him to act. And God shows up again right on schedule. This time, instead of a burning bush, though, He came in the flesh of humanity. This time, instead of sending a servant, he sends his son. This time, when asked, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus Christ responds in John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He takes the name and he owns it because it had been given to him. Because that is who he is. He is God incarnate. He is not just some really cool dude. He knew exactly what he was saying right there. And this time, instead of judging the Egyptians to free the Israelites, Jesus Christ takes our judgment upon himself that we might know and be reconciled to God the Father, that we might be with him, our heart's goal and desire. God is the goal of our rescue. God is the goal of our ambition, our dreams, and our desire. Have you come to see that God is the wired goal of your heart? And if not, seek him while he is still able to be found. While the the time is still available to you. And if you are a Christian, ask yourself why. It's not just to come and gather on Sunday mornings to have some great treats and have a good time. Although we do have a good time. Um, it's, It's because of who Christ is. And the joy of getting to spend eternity with him later when heaven and earth come together and are finally doing all the will of the Father, the fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer, and also here today. Seek Him first, and all of these things will be added unto you. Trust and obey Him to guide the aim of your heart and His good, freeing deliverance. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we come before you amazed at your word, continuing to see you work throughout history, choosing your people to save, choosing to always do good, choosing always to never give up on your creation. This is the kind of God you are, and you reveal yourself afresh here to the Exodus generation, and now we get to read back upon and learn afresh to remember God, may you be the, whole, the, 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 the goal and the passion of our hearts. You've wired us to be goal-driven people. So may we then embrace the wired, goal-driven fulfillment, which is you incarnate for us, who lived the life that we could not live, died the death we deserved to die, and raised again from the grave three days after that we might be reconciled to God and have a hope of everlasting life with you and peace and joy and love, life as we were designed to live. Holy Spirit, come and move within us. Lord Jesus, may you be our Lord, and Heavenly Father, may you receive the glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.